Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. send me stuff all the time. We have a regular listener in just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Her name is Jessica, and she sent me, um, she is one of our, what I will call, frontline bolo people. So she is on the lookout. So be on the lookout is one of Jessica's, like, well, that's kind of uh, one of her go-by attributes. So the other day, she's out in her neighborhood. She starts seeing these signs out in people's yards, and the signs are white with black block lettering and they say everything will be okay. There's nothing fancy about the signs. There's nothing particularly engaging about the signs. All block letters, all the same size. Everything will be okay. And she sees starting to see them all over her neighborhood. Well, she then sends me the related CNN article. Uh, apparently, this is an effort by um, people in her community to put out these signs declaring that everything will be okay. And they're doing so to raise money for local uh, art teachers um, and other artists. Okay. So, you know, Jessica and I are noting the only way you could say that everything will be okay. The only way you could say that is if you know Jesus, because everything is otherwise not okay and not going to be okay. And so it, it, it sort of tills up a conversation in a community about based on what is everything going to be okay? Like based on what? Putting a sign in your yard that declares that everything will be okay has to have its basis or foundation in something. So she said, well, some of her friends who have these signs in their yards were adding the the, the phrase at the bottom, everything will be okay like because of Jesus or everything will be okay in Jesus. Well, I'm imagining there's going to be pushback against that at some point because people are going to be like, Rah! the Jesus freaks. But here would be my what I would want to put on the bottom of my sign. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your hope has to be secured in something. And so um, everything will be okay. But based on what? Everything will be okay. But based on who? And the answer to that question is Jesus. So spend some time singing today, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and dare not trust in anything else um, but wholly lean in Jesus' name. Peter Kapsner is up next. Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Carmen. I, li- I like that alrighty. I haven't heard alrighty for, for quite some time. Uh, that was a I'm, great intro. I have a intro. list of things. I have a list of things to talk with you about. People are falling in love with their Peloton instructors. Oh, my gosh. There's a move to 
I don't know, declare part of North America Jesus land. I got <laughs> Hollywood's got intimacy coordinators, and you want to talk about Tiger Woods. Well, so let's, uh, let's me. start forgive there. Yeah, let's no. start there. Well, um, first of all, we want to just, you know, be be thankful that um, this story is is not worse. Right? It, it, it could have been much worse, Carmen. Yeah. I mean, when you and I'm sure some of our listeners have seen the the pictures, the footage of the wreckage. Uh, some of the the accounts suggested that that is a pretty dangerous stretch of road. There's a lot of accidents there, but for some reason that has not been revealed yet. He was traveling what appears to be at a pretty high rate of speed and went crashing through the banister and by most accounts flipped over several times, flew some 200, oh, I think it was 200 feet if I remember right. But that front end of the vehicle, it's amazing that he's actually still with us on, on planet Earth because it was a devastating, devastating accident. And, and I think some of his professional golfing colleagues were, when they saw the footage, they feared the worst. And, and we're only a little more than a year removed from the death of Kobe Bryant, who is probably among the best-known basketball players of this last generation when he was tragically killed in a helicopter accident. And now you're talking about uh, certainly the most seminal figure in golf over the last probably 25 or 30 years that really changed the game. He, he made it cool for young people to want to golf. He made it accessible that it wasn't just a country club activity anymore. And a lot of the next generation of golfers have been sort of devastated by these events of this now 45-year-old who, for all intents and purposes, it would be very, very, very surprising to see him on the golf course, again, given the extensive nature uh, of the injuries that have been sustained. They were talking about, uh, I mean, his, his, I'm not a surgeon, but his, it sounds like his leg was basically in pieces. There was open wounds. It was, it was just a really difficult situation. And, and it's, it's an interesting story when you look back over the course of events about the height of his fame and how he just absolutely changed the face of, of, of a sport through the uh, it, golf has always been a gentleman kind of sport. And, and he took it from a competitive standpoint to the next level and really shifted everything about that. And of course, then he had the well-documented fall from grace in which he was found to be uh, a serial philanderer and, and certainly uh, the, his sexual morals were uh, just devastating to have revealed to his wife and his kids and, and, of course, to the world at large. And he sort of came back and became a bit more of a quiet figure, at least outside looking in, more of a repentant figure. He began to gain respect. He won the Masters Tournament last year, and, and that was quite the 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 sporting event. And you figure, well, so he made it through, right? I mean, he made it through the incredible fall from grace and came through at least outside looking in again, a somewhat transformed human being. So you figure, well, maybe he's got a, a quite a journey ahead of him where he can kind of put that in the past and, and all of the tragedies behind him. And also wham here, here we're at this point. And Carmen, I think it, I, I obviously as a, as a golfer and a sports observer and a sports media member, I'm interested in the sports part of this, but as a believer and as somebody who's walking out life in this earth and going back to what you and Jessica were talking about with the sign in terms of, where we really do find our hope at the end of the day, I think a lot of people assume that once you go through some tragedies in your life, well, that's probably enough of that. And now we get to sort of go on to a good life. But <laughs> this is an incredible story that proves that we really can't find our hope in this world, that we might have some temporary circumstances that we can lean into a bit and be grateful for and, and take some joy from. But boy, oh boy, nothing is promised to us. Absolutely nothing is promised to us. And I guess one more piece of the puzzle, I had a friend of mine who was in a hospital for a heart transplant and 
And it's, it's, it's a similar story in the sense that he had to wait a year to get a heart, and it was this tragedy and suffering and difficulty. And finally, there was a donor available for the heart, and they, they celebrated as a family, as they should, and that God was blessing them now. And, and finally, after all of the trials and trauma and struggles of being in the hospital for a year, and, and I was with them, and, and we were so excited about the possibilities that now he could leave and return to his home to be a father to his three kids. And the heart transplant didn't go well, and he passed away. And and you think, mm. boy, oh boy. So what what do we think is going on in this world, and how do we understand our life in this world? And where could you possibly find hope if it wasn't in in Jesus? And and that's not a little pithy cliche. That is one of the most significant truths in which we can walk. I look at the uh, pictures <clears throat> from the crash, and I think to myself, I think he was really um, fortunate oh. to be in such a high-quality vehicle. Yes, <clears throat> very true. And I think there's going to be lots of conversations, um, you know, probably about that going forward as well. Um, I take this—Tiger Woods is one of those guys who, if God ever got a hold of him, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if Tiger Woods ever allowed himself to be gotten by God, right? Um, the, the platform that he would have— um, in terms of declaring God's glory would be great. So I will just confess to you, that's my prayer. Well, and That's my prayer, is that God would use this as a transforming encounter. I, and that, I think, Carmen— that, it, that he'd have a testimony coming out of this. It, it's an appropriate prayer. I just started to jump in on that. But what's interesting is he's surrounded by sort of this young group of golfers that have really made an impact on the sport, all of whom are wearing their faith on their sleeve. There's Justin yeah. Thomas and Ricky Fowler and a number of these golfers that are well-known, and they really actually are for one another. And they've, they've kind of taken Tiger under their wing, if you could possibly take Tiger under your wing, you know, somebody of that stature within that sport. But it's an appropriate prayer because not because Tiger's soul is more important than yours or mine or Paul Perot or Jessica or any of our listeners. It's because that he does have a platform that that could turn many, especially when he went through his journey uh, of at least appearing to be somewhat repentant. It was from the perspective of the Buddhist faith of his mother. And I'll tell you what, Carmen, that the repentance in that place uh, seemed a bit hollow. It was more, well, I'll become a good person. I got to dedicate myself to the right kind of practices. There wasn't that that kind of broken repentance that then God, as he used the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, Paul was so broken in his mm-hmm. repentance and he became this, he had this treasure in this clay pot where, where God just magnificent brightness shine through him as a result. And I think that's what we can pray for in this. <laughs> I love the point when, you know, the <clears throat> the person to whom God is speaking about receiving Paul and going and ministering to him is like, um, God, um, you you know that guy, right? Because he's not he's, he's not well known for loving Christians. Right. Okay, I love okay. It. Um, all right, we got to take a very brief break. When Peter Capster and I come back, we are either going to talk about people falling in love with their Peloton instructors, <clears throat> or something trending on Twitter called Jesus Land. And I'm going to let Peter choose. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, Dr. Peter Kapscher and I are back. We we like to take some of the um, more curious headlines of the week and bring the mind of Christ to bear and have a little fun while we're doing it. So here's one for you, Peter. <clears throat> this is yesterday, the 24th of February, 2021. I am reading this um, from a Jewish uh, news outlet, um, but it's also covered here in the United States. This is just the one where I could get it for free. Jesus land won't be good for the Jews, but the United States of Canada might be good for bagels. As the <laughs> far amazing. right meme Jesus land goes viral, here's a look at the winners and losers in this distributing 
uh, rendering of the United States. So uh, it's an online graphic. It's a map. It it redivides North America into Jesus, so-called Jesus land and the United States of Canada. Obviously, the United States of Canada being a liberal uh North American expression and quote unquote Jesus land being something else. So I thought we'd surface this, we'd talk a little bit about it, and we would declare to people that Jesus, although being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, has no Jesus land. <laughs> I think I think that's fairly said right there, Carmen. I mean, there, there are a number of, if, if you just uh, Google something like secession or something like that in the United States, you have any number of people that are looking to try to break up the United States, or, or at least suggesting positive ways to break up the United States because they don't believe that the cultural tension can be held any longer between what they would consider to be more far-right conservative values and maybe more liberal, uh, far-left kinds of values. And so when you look at the map of Jesus land, there is sort of this breakdown between Washington and Oregon and California on the West Coast, all of the New England states on the East Coast, and then Minnesota, where I live, gets sort of sucked in from the center of the country, as does Illinois. And beyond that, then, the entire map is a red map where I, I haven't read what... Okay, would you not be in... G- so just to be clear... I would you not would be. find yourself outside of Jesus land. I would be in I would be in the Babylon version of this. I would certainly and, be outside of Okay, so but so Jesus let me just land. pause there for just a second because yeah. let's just say hypothetically, you know, this this came to pass. You Correct. would either have to immigrate to Jesus land, which we would have strict borders and boundaries. Yeah, because you, you would be in ahead, Jesus land. Let me just go ahead and tell you I'd if be you right would in the vouch of, for me. Yeah. I would be the center point of Jesus land you should this map uh, find its way forward. Um and we would then create borders against those of you living currently in places that um are apparently going to be relegated into uh, some other nation. Indeed. Now, let's just talk right there about uh, about the way that we as Christians could then use this, you know, kind of silly conversation to talk about immigration we, or to, to or to talk about um, the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, no matter where the borders and boundaries are. Like, yeah. I mean, I think there's opportunities here for discussion. There certainly is that last comment that you made, and, and you've known me long enough to know where probably I'm going to land on this particular issue, but but I can't find anywhere in Scripture within the four Gospels that chronicle the lives of Jesus from the different angles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John do. Not a single one of them ever chronicle that Jesus was talking about setting up a political kingdom on this earth, that that was the goal of what he was doing, that he would express himself through the lens of politics and that his kingdom values would find their home in, in those places. And that does not mean by any stretch, Carmen, that we should not be people of faith in politics, that we should not have the, the kind of life consistent with the kingdom within the political sphere. But saying that is very different than saying Jesus is operating through the politics of the day. And it's very clear that it, not only did he not say that in the four gospels, but what he specifically said is my kingdom is not of this world. And so regardless of whether we found ourselves in the new United States of Canada or in the Jesus land of the breakdown, the, the call and the mission and the ministry of believers never changes. I mean, we're citizens of heaven, right? And so we, we manifest the realities of heaven in current time and space because we know where our future is. We know where our hope is. We know where our actual home is and we know towards which we're headed. And so you and I, Paul Perorlis, all of we, we're, we're called to shine the light of our actual home in the midst of this temporary home of this earth so that everybody could be called safely home at the end of the day. That's what it means to bear witness to the, to the kingdom of Jesus. And, and, I, and I understand people are concerned about losing their, their sense maybe of, of freedoms. And, and there's not, it's not, it, it's justifiable. It's, it, nobody wants to head into a time of persecution or where you can't practice your faith openly and, and with great freedom. And yet at the same time, we have to hold the balance that 
that Jesus's kingdom wasn't in the political sphere. And not only that, it tends to actually expand and grow in beautiful ways when it is under persecution. So if, if you do, if you're a student of history and you do want Jesus's kingdom to expand, you may want to even think about welcoming persecution like some of the apostles, dare I say, suggested in the biblical text. It's, it's a completely upside down way of thinking historically, but that would be what's consistent with scripture. It's also interesting to sort of note the migratory patterns of people within the United States of America. It is, um, there it? are lots of people moving from places like New York and California to places like where I live in Tennessee. Um, and so when we talk about the influence that we have on one another and the influence that we have when we move from one community to another, I think there are interesting opportunities for conversation uh, there as well. Um, okay, let's uh, let's spend a couple of minutes dealing with the fact that people are falling in love with their Peloton instructors. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and confess I don't have a Peloton. Um, <clears throat> I do know how to ride a bike, but that's about the end of it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what's going on here? Well, the, the word Peloton is new to my lexicon as well as of 24 hours ago when you sent me the headlines. Well, there's also because, the echelon. You could okay. also have an, people are probably falling in, falling in love with all, all manner and number of varieties of uh, online trainers yes. who they think they're interacting with in reality. Well, that's just it. I mean, we, we, first of all, I'd have to exercise on a regular basis to understand what's happening here. But, but, the, but the second piece of it is you're right. In the midst of this pandemic shutdown, people are finding sort of this daily rhythm where they are exercising, maybe on their Peloton bike or, as you said, Echelon or in other forms. And they often are streaming these pixelated, sometimes pre-recorded, if I understand correctly, but, uh, but these pixelated images on the screen. So they're the instructors about how to get the best out of your, your exercise routine. And it's the typical thing that you see, right? We, we would have gone into health clubs and had Pilates classes or other kinds of exercise with groups of people led by an instructor. But now it's kind of almost this one-on-one -on -one thing with your online virtual instructor. And people are so understandably lonely and feeling fragmented. I think the stats are that nearly half the country is has reduced their their communication with other people and their relationship with other people in a personal way to pods of 10 or less and and barely see these people and and so the one rhythm that's normal in the day is your peloton instructor and the peloton instructor encourages you and maybe may ha helps you laugh and maybe sympathizes with your plight in life and i think we're so hungry for human interaction right at the end of the day that somebody who sees us, somebody that enjoy, seems to enjoy our company, somebody that seems to uh, maybe laugh again with us and share an affinity and exercise, all of those things, people begin to feel like, oh, they really know me. They really like me. And I just think it speaks to, to the desperation that so many of us have to just be seen and, and to have the question answered, if you see me, do you like what you see? I had a friend of mine who who's in counseling and in pastoral ministry as well, and she said, it's one of the fundamental questions of the human condition is, do you see me? Not, not physically. Do you just actually, when I'm in the room, do you notice that I'm there? And when you do notice, do you actually like what you notice? And, and certainly the Peloton instructor in these sort of warped ways does that for people, and they're beginning to fall in love with them because it's, it just feels so good to the human heart. Yeah, people are declaring um, de declaring their love and affection for people they have never met. And here's the good news. They guess they are describing it. Um, they are describing these as imagination ships. 
Interesting. Not relationships, but imagination. What so a there's term. a word for you, Peter, to take to class today. Imagination. Just I, write it on the board. I will. Write imaginationship on the board and see if your students know more about Peloton than you do. You know, because I, I feel you could say that do. about any number of things, Carmen. My <laughs> students know more about something than me when it comes to this kind of thing. But I will. I'll write that down on the board today for sure. All right, off to class with you, Peter Kapsner. Thank you so much. That sounds great. Can I just note that Paul Perot once again? We tested out a new walk-up song with with uh, bagpipes, right, Paul? It, it was, was bagpipes. Pipes rendition. in the final countdown, and, yep. and I'll tell you what, that might be the winner for the future, Carmen. We might hear that one again next week. That's good. That's good. I love that it. could be your victory song. All right, <laughs> we'll be right, be great. We'll be right back. See ya. All right, sometimes um, there's a big headline out of a small place. So here was the big headline out of Plains, Georgia. Over the weekend, Jim and Rosalind Carter returned to church after receiving their COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, that's a national headline today. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter are attending church once again after receiving their COVID-19 vaccines. Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, erupted in applause as the pastor made the announcement telling the congregation, "Let's." this is what happened on Wednesday, let's welcome them back. Um, they've both had their shots. So, you know, they are the uh, he's the oldest living president and she is the oldest living former first lady um and they waved from the pew they sit in week in and week out they have not been there obviously for a year um and yet this is their this is a sign of like normalcy a return to normalcy that the 96 year old former president and his 93 year old wife are back in worship what does that say back to corporate worship is a return to normalcy what does that say about the importance of corporate worship and how we're made? Why corporate worship matters so much? That's actually the conversation I'm going to have next with Matt Merker. He is the author of Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. We'll be right back. This is Max Licato. Make a list of God's mistakes. Pretty short, huh? Now make a list of the times he has forgiven yours. <laughs> Who on earth has such a record? You can depend on him. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13 eight. Trust him. Trust him. Join with Isaiah who resolved, I will trust in him and not be afraid. Psalm 37 and verse 23 and 24 says, God is directing your steps. He delights in every detail of your life. Doesn't matter who you are. Pot-bellied pig or prize purebred, God sees no difference but he sees you. In fact, that's his car pulling over to the side of the road. That's God opening the door. <laughs> and that's you climbing into the passenger seat to see how he will write the next chapter in your story. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Matt Merker. Uh, he is the Director of Creative Resources and Training for Getty Music. Uh, he has also contributed to many modern hymns, including the one you just heard, He Will Hold Me Fast. Um, Matt, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to talk about corporate worship. That's actually the title of the book, Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. And I think we better first start with the word corporate, 
because the word corporate in the culture does not mean what it means when we're talking about it in relationship to worship. <laughs> right. I'm not talking about corporate in terms of businesses. <laughs> I'm talking about it in terms of the body meaning worship that we do together when God's people gathers. That's the kind of aspect of worship that I really am passionate about and I think is too often missing from conversations about worship. So that's why I put the word there as the first word in the title to sort of prompt that conversation exactly that you asked me about. So let's talk about that. Um, What is worship? Why is corporate worship so important? Um, And I I just like the idea that this this is actually what we were made for. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Yes, we are all worshipers. Uh, in, in fact, that's, that's part of what it means to be created in God's image. We're, we're created to look to Him, to honor Him, to serve Him, to adore Him. And not all people do that. Uh, many people worship idols. We worship ourselves. And when God redeems us in Christ, He saves us to become worshipers of Him. And so Paul tells us to offer your whole lives, your bodies, as a living sacrifice of worship, which means everything we do, Sunday through Saturday, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, working at our jobs, caring for children or grandchildren. All of it is worship. And yet the Bible also has a category, to use Paul's language, for when you come together as a church. There's a special type of worship when God's people gather as a community, as a family, to praise Him and to build one another up. And so that's what we mean when we talk about corporate worship. All right. You um, you allude there to one of the major um, takeaways for me from the book. And it's actually a takeaway that starts in your opening illustration, because you talk there about when we gather or come together as uh, a family. Talk about the family of God and share with people the opening illustration of the book, because I actually thought like, gosh, that's a mental hook upon which I could hang a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think, you know, so often when I talk to people about church and what they look forward to about church, I hear wonderful things, but they can often be individual things. Like, I I love hearing the preaching. Well, that's great. I love singing praise to God. That's great. We should should enjoy those things. We're made to enjoy those things. But I kind of relate it to when my family sits around the dinner table. Uh, There are things that we do when we eat dinner that help make us who we are. And so if you were to come and, and look at my family dinner, you'd notice things that are probably similar to many families across the world. You know, first and foremost, we eat and we talk. I think that's what most families do, but there are some things that make it distinct. You know, for my family, we're believers in Christ, so we pray before the meal. My wife is Italian-American, so that flavors the menu. You know, she makes the best meatballs, the best, best lasagna ever in the whole world, and it's just a fact. And when we hang out and have dinner together, we have two little kids, and the things that we're doing, the things that we're saying are forming their identity as murkers, as part of our family, the stories that we tell the jokes that we laugh at. And so I could eat the same lasagna by myself and I would get the same nutrients in my body and that would bless me. But it's not the same as when I eat that dish of lasagna with the people that I love, with my family, because when we come together, it binds us as one. It forms us as who we are. And that's what's going on when God's people gather for worship. It's not just that we all individually get to glorify God by singing to him, praying, hearing preaching, but actually the gathering of the church forms us as a corporate people, as a family, a local church. So one of the things that strikes me, um, we have been talking a lot lately with, um, Afri- with pastors of predominantly African-American congregations, and so they are mostly African-American pastors. Um, and 
as I was reading your book, Corporate Worship, um, one of the things that I think I am more convicted of is that as we continue to gather in what are largely um, racially divided contexts, um, we are actually failing to gather as God's people in terms of what it's going to look like in the kingdom of heaven. Like we, it is, it, we're not training ourselves up in uh, in what it means to be distinctly the people of God if we continue to gather over over time and train ourselves up to gather in contexts of worship that are um, that are racially segre- segregated. And so that was just sort of a an aha moment that I had along the way, just in terms of other conversations that I'm having right now. Um, so I just just an observation that I made. Yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing that up. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. And, and sadly, I think it's still true. Uh, and I think it requires prayer. I think it requires hard conversations, I, the kind of conversations that, that you just mentioned. I think it requires people in the majority culture, white American culture, actually humbling ourselves uh, and maybe finding opportunities to, to join black churches or to sit under black preachers. Or, you know, it, it's going to take radical action uh, to change the status quo, which developed over centuries and generations of history in this country. But you're exactly right. When Paul talks in Ephesians 3.10 about the witness of the local church and how the, the heavenly and spiritual powers are looking on uh, at God's wisdom on display, what they're looking at is the unity of the church. Now, there it's particularly Jew and Gentile, which is a very special kind of unity in salvation history. But it has implications for our unity today across all sorts of boundaries. So you're exactly right. It's something we need to be praying for and seeking God's wisdom and humbling ourselves and repenting of past wrongs. So I am talking with Matt Merker. We're talking about corporate worship, the reality of it, um, and also the book about it, Corporate Worship how the church gathers as God's people. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, as a church leader, this is something I really need some help with, or you are thinking, I would love for my church leadership to be read in on this. I do have some books to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing for the copies of Corporate Worship from Nine Marks that we have to give away today. Uh, Matt Merker and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Matt Merker. We're talking about corporate worship, how the church gathers as God's people. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies we have available today, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Matt, uh, there are some barriers to getting from where we are now to a place where our corporate worship might be, um, as you describe, word-centric and God-glorifying. Um, talk with us a little bit about maybe what are the marks of corporate worship that's genuinely, you know, I don't, I don't even know how to phrase this quite the right way, um, glorifying to God, because there's a bunch of it that's not. Um, and then uh, and then I think that the conclusion list or the list in the in the concluding chapter is really helpful. So maybe walk us up to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when God gathers us, I, I identify three main biblical purposes And so I think those are important for us to keep in mind, whether your role is just someone who attends on Sunday as a church member or whether you're the pastor or the song leader. God gathers us for his exaltation. Everything we do should be aimed at enjoying 
adoring, exalting, magnifying the triune God who created us and redeemed us. And so when we come together as God's people, we should leave with a sense of awe at who God is and what he's done. Yes, we'll learn about ourselves in Christ. We'll learn about the Christian life. But most fundamentally, we encounter the living God and give him praise. Number two, God gathers us for edification. So I think a sign of health in in corporate worship is when we gather not just to learn about the Lord or be encouraged in the Lord, but to build one another up. And that happens when we open our mouth and sing. It happens when we open our mouth and all say amen after a prayer, when we read scripture out loud together, when we take the Lord's Supper together. We come not fundamentally as consumers, but as servants uh, seeking to edify one another. And then the third thing is evangelism. We we should have an eye toward the unbeliever. I, I don't think that we should structure our worship services primarily based on the preferences or the whims of the non-believer. But Paul does envision the non-believer attending in 1 Corinthians 14 and says, if you are doing the first two things, if you're exalting God in your worship and seeking to edify one another in your worship, that's the kind of gathered worship that is evangelistic. Because what exalts God and what edifies us, it's rehearsing and proclaiming the good news of Christ, that Christ has come to save sinners by dying on the cross and rising again for all who repent and believe. And ah, we should desire that God saves people as they hear that good news when we proclaim it. So those are the things on a very high level that I think uh, we should be aiming for. So when I think about that, um, that last one, I'm imagining that uh, you, have, you have girls or you have boys? I have one girl and one boy. Yeah. Okay. So I'm imagining, I'm imagining one day, I know that this is far down the road and as a daddy, you kind of hope it maybe never happens, but someday there will be other people who want to become workers because they want to be in, you know, a a long-term forever relationship with that little boy or that little girl. And part of what they're going to experience when they come to your table is what being a murker looks like. And, um, and so I, I love that. Uh, that opening illustration because it works all the way through Um, and it works all the way through to what it looks like then to knit new people into the family of faith. There's always a recognition that the table um, has more empty chairs at it than God would prefer. Like God wants those seats filled. Um, And so how, how is the family of faith enlarged? What do people learn about God by being present with us as we worship him? I mean, that's part of what's going on here. Absolutely. And, and we should want those seats to be filled. And I encourage pastors to each week in your sermon, make the gospel clear. That doesn't mean that you uh, necessarily sort of tack it on at the end as a quick, you know, call to repentance and faith. No, show how your text of scripture relates to the central message of the Bible, which is that Christ has come to save sinners. And it should be clear in the songs that we sing. And the rough edges of the gospel should be clear. Not not just the parts that make unbelievers feel good, but the the parts that declare hard truths like our sin and how it deserves judgment and condemnation before a holy God, because that's what makes the good news so sweet. Uh, So all those sorts of things should be in our songs. Our songs should be full of robust and rich truths that come from Scripture because it builds up believers and because those are the things that we do want the watching world to hear. So I have an uh, an eighty something year old friend, um, 
And obviously in COVID, uh, that individual has been disconnected from their local congregation and their congregation has not done online worship. That's just not something that they've done. So I invited uh, her at one point, you know, to, 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 to go to church with me, basically, by attending a service online that, that our congregation was offering. And um, her commentary afterwards was, wow, your pastor prays for a really long time and your pastor preaches for a really long time. <laughs> and, and I thought, yep, I think that's true. Um, and, um, and what else did you, like, did you, you know, so this drawing in um, to, to what's happening in the context of worship. Talk a little bit about the pieces and parts of a worship service, because you, I love where you conclude this, which is with an, with an examination of orders of worship around the world, um, sort of stimulating us to think and consider about the ordering of our worship. Yeah, that, that's right. When you look at the Bible, there are a few very clear commands for what we are to do. And so I encourage churches to do that, to, to be faithful. It's not like when you approach the, the question of what should we do this Sunday, that you're looking at a blank whiteboard. Actually, you're looking at a whiteboard that's already been filled in with permanent marker by God, what he intends for us to do. Now, the forms in which we do those things, there's freedom and there's flexibility. So God calls us to sing his praise. Do we do that in the major key or the minor key? Do you accompany it with an organ or with a guitar? You know, those are questions that are left up to our prudence. We can make wise or perhaps less wise uh, decisions on those things. But I just follow the Protestant reformers who tell us or who summarize uh, scripture on this point as preach the word, read the word, sing the word, pray the word, and see the word as it is depicted and summarized in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And once you got, have those main things in place, then I think we can look to history and look to other Christian examples. We can look to principles and patterns in Scripture for how to arrange those things. And, and essentially, I recommend arranging them. And I'm just following, again, the, the Protestant reformers and the Puritans here, arranging those elements so that the preaching of the Word is at the center and that that proclamation of Scripture is complemented and supported by other Scripture readings, prayers and songs, so that the whole thing, to go back to the meal illustration, is one unified menu uh, that's all kind of telling one grand story. Uh, and so, yeah, those, that's why I have the suggestions from around the world, because I think this is very applicable universally. It's not a Western thing. It's not an American thing. It works just as well in Brazil as in China because it's biblical. Yeah, amen. The book is Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. Um, let me say that if you are listening right now and you've you've wondered whether or not you are experiencing in the context of cor corporate worship um, with other people uh, what you're supposed to be experiencing, like this is a really good book to examine that question. Um, this is a great book for those of you who are church leaders, worship leaders. Um, this is a wonderful book for those of you who are parents um, or grandparents and want to introduce um, or revive within your own family um, the commitment to corporate worship. We are all nearing the time when we're going to have the opportunity to, quote, go back to church. And the question is, um, as we are regathered by God as his people in particular spaces and places, will we authentically worship him? Like, that's really the question. And so um, COVID has uh, has definitely tilled the soil of desire to be gathered with God's people in corporate worship. And so let's be prepared to do so in ways that glorify, uh, glorify God and edify others. The book is Corporate Worship, 
How the Church Gathers as God's People. Matt Merker is the author. Matt, thanks for being here today. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the books I have available in studio, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Matt, blessings. Thanks so much, Carmen. Thanks. We'll be right back. All right, let me uh, let me just lift up to you Psalm 95 today. Um, go ahead and sing it with the, all the joy that your heart can muster. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Those are verses six and seven of Psalm 95. Go ahead and spend some time today reveling in the goodness of who God is and in the, in, in the grace of his glory. Um, you can turn to him in Christ Jesus in this moment. If you've never done so, let me encourage you to consider receiving today the great grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.